Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good. Good to see you. Thanks for being here. Those of you in person that actually woke up on time, well, maybe you didn't because you're at the 1030 service. I don't know, but uh, we're glad that you're here. Everybody at home, uh, thank you for being a part of the journey. Uh, as we have said today, and we like to remind people, man, probably 80% of our church is still at home watching. And um, it's crazy to think about that because it's been one year since we closed up our doors here and uh, locked the doors as many people did. We thought this was going to be a couple of weeks, right? A couple of weeks, a couple of months, we'd be back to normal and it's a year later. Um, one of the things I just want to tell you about that is our staff and our leaders, we are in the process of working on getting details together about what it looks like for us to fully open back up again with kids classes and teenage classes on Sunday mornings to see this place packed out. We have some goals that we are reaching for. I appreciate your patience. I know some of you are ready to go right into that right now. appreciate your patience as we work towards that and we hope to get some information out here in the next few weeks uh, to tell you what that looks like for us here at The Journey because we, we're ready for that but we know this pandemic is still going on uh, but, uh, but we know that hopefully the end is, is coming soon. So again, thanks for your patience and we look forward to being together. Um, hey, as we get started this morning, I want to I wanna show you this, this book. I, I used it in a, a message probably about three or four years ago. It's the mass media election, how Americans choose their president. And I can honestly tell you, I've not read one word out of this book, but it was written by Thomas E. Patterson back in 1980. And I think it'd be kind of funny to actually go back and read it and see what Patterson said then and see if it still correlates to kind of our political climate that we have right now. Now, I know you're maybe asking, well, why do you have this book with you? This is actually a book, a library book from the Z. Smith Reynolds Library at the campus of Wake Forest University, the school I went to first. And um, I, I've had this book for a little over two decades and never turned it back in. <laughs> so um, they're probably still wondering where Thomas Patterson's 1980 book is, and it's, it's right here in Northern Virginia. Uh, but I have the book with me because um, I, I, when I went to Wake Forest, I actually went to be an accounting major. And uh, I took accounting classes my sophomore year and realized real quickly that accounting courses in college were very different than accounting courses in high school. And I knew accounting wasn't for me. I was done with accounting at that point. Had to pick a major, and so political science was something I kind of had a love for, and I decided to study that. Now, we all know if you're a political science major, it means you can't find a job, right? There's nothing out there. And funny part is here in D.C., you figure out, well, yeah, you can find a job, because we have quite a few people here at The Journey who have a political science major. But, um, uh, but there are a lot of books that we were supposed to read, I didn't read, like Thomas Patterson's The Mass Media Election book. Um, there were a lot of conversations that took place in class that I, I really don't remember a whole lot about. Uh, but the one thing, if I took one thing out of my time studying political science, it was this, that politics rule our world. They make the world go round. And that's why today, as we continue our series called The Revolution, we're going to talk about Jesus and the political revolution that he led then and still leads to this day. Now, I want you to, before you tune out in here, before you tune off at home, stay with me because we're not going to talk about the politics like you think we would talk about. We talked about that in the fall. I'm not going back in that direction. I'm going to take a little bit different look at the political climate today and then and, and how this connects with this revolution uh, that Jesus still leads. 
Now, now, last year I talked a little bit about the, the political factions that were in place at Jesus' time. You had the Roman Empire, uh, which kind of ruled everything, right? It was kind of the, the, the big empire in the known world at the time. Uh, you then had, the, you had the, the, the rulers of this nation of Israel, and Israel was actually a client state. It was, um, it was a place that the Romans said, hey, we're going to let you still rule, but if you mess up, you screw up, hey, we're going to jump in and we're going to change things really quickly. And so these leaders were really close to the Roman government and everything that was there. But then you had, as we talked last week, you had the Jewish religious political faction too. And so the people, they were pretty confused. It's kind of like, who do we follow? Who do we listen to? Who's really in charge here? And so over the next few moments, I'm going to kind of hope to weave the story together of how what was happening there politically um, was something that Jesus came to end uh, so that we could truly understand who Jesus is and follow Jesus fully. Well, as we began, we're going to talk about some of the Herodian dynasty. At the birth of Jesus, we had Herod the Great, who was in charge of the nation of Israel. And we meet Herod for the first time in Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1, a story you're probably very familiar with. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And we're going to talk about why he was disturbed in just a second. You may already know. But verse 7 says, And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Uh, let me give you a little background about King Herod here, Herod the Great. Uh, he was an outsider to Judaism. He didn't come from a long generation of, of Hebrews. His dad had actually converted to Judaism, really not for religious purposes at all. It was really for political purposes. And so the religious leaders and, and the, the, the Jewish people, they saw him as an outsider. Herod the Great was from the wrong background. He was from the wrong family. He had the wrong upbringing. However, when it came to Herod, they really did have this love-hate relationship with him. I mean, they hated him because of, he wasn't really one of them. They hated him because of his leadership style. Uh, he was cozy with the Romans. He brought in all this Hellenistic culture into this Jewish culture, which was trying to stay away from the Hellenistic culture. But he was an insecure leader too. And, and we talk about this quite a bit with Herod, King Herod at the Christmas time. Um, he was always afraid someone was out to take his job. He was always afraid someone was out to, to become king in, in his place. And, and so he would take care of you if he had doubts about your security or your doubts about your allegiance to him. And so he killed three of his sons. He executed them, a wife, a mother, siblings, key advisors. And so we go back and we look at what we just read here in, in Matthew um, he, he saw Jesus as this threat. Now, he didn't know Jesus, and he didn't know what kind of king Jesus was coming to be, but he saw Jesus as this threat, too. He doesn't really want to worship Jesus. He wants to execute Jesus. He wants to get rid of Jesus because here's someone who may be coming after his throne based on this information that he had received. Now, they hated him for other reasons, too. Uh, he put a really heavy tax burden on the Jewish people. Uh, he chose the high priest for the temple. And that day, you did not do that. That was the religious leader's job to do. 
and yet he chooses who the high priest is going to be. And so if you kind of throw all that together, there's a lot of hate towards this guy whose his name is Herod the Great. But they loved him too. And they loved him because the economy was really, really strong. Uh, lots of government money was coming into this district, and uh, there was these massive publicly funded projects that were going on, of course, because of these extreme tax burdens that were put on the people. The construction industry was booming. I kind of imagine Jerusalem looked like D.C. did pre-COVID, right? Remember, you drive around that area, or you drive over you know, past the Pentagon, and you look down, and you see cranes all over the cityscape. I kind of imagine it was like that building is happening like crazy, and all of this building, this construction boom is really fueling the economy for the Jewish people. And things are going really well for them economically because he's building these amazing structures. He's building stadiums and theaters and gyms. He's even built these water parks for people to enjoy, these incredible homes, these fortresses, these, these marinas. He's really trying to build a little Rome because he keeps going back to Rome and he sees the structures that are there and the impressive buildings that are being built. And so he brings that back to Jerusalem. He brings that back to the other cities, the major cities in the nation of Israel. And he's, he's like, man, we've got to make this. We've got to do this. And he, he's trying to impress Roman government because he, he wants more power. He wants them to trust him more. But one of his main building projects is actually the reconstruction of the temple. Uh, the temple, you may know, was central to the Jewish faith. Uh, it's the place that you worship God. It, it was the place that you offered sacrifices. Uh, it was a place that you would gather to hang out with friends. It was a place that you would go to learn. It, it was a place that you would go to at lunchtime during the week and go play basketball with your buddies. But I'm just kidding. They, James Naismith didn't actually invent basketball 2,000 years ago. But anyway, it, what I mean is it was just a hot spot. It was a great place to go and hang out. But most importantly, it was the place that God dwelled. Herod gets wind that the religious leaders want to rebuild the temple. And so he jumps in. He's like, hey, show me what you got. And they show him the plans. And he looks at him. He's like, this, this needs to be bigger. And this needs to be better. And it's kind of like Herod's on his own HGTV show, right? He's like, we're going to blow out the walls. We're going to do open concept. We're going to put you know, butcher block uh, counters down. We're going to do all this. We're going to expand it. We're going we're to make this place impressive. And if you're the religious leaders, guess what you're saying? Like, no, 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 we don't. We don't want you to invest money and stuff and make this bigger and better. Now they're like, well, yeah, this is great. Help us make this as impressive as we can. In fact, one of the things that Herod does, he looks at the space they already have, and he's like, to expand this, to make this more impressive, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring in tons of dirt. And so they didn't have bulldozers and dump trucks. It's, you know, it's by hands, like wheelbarrow stuff that's happening. They're bringing in all this dirt so they can actually raise the Temple Mount. Now, they don't touch the Holy of Holies because that would have been sacrilegious. But everything else, we can raise it up. We can make it taller. And so people can see it from further away. And so this incredible, incredible structure that was there already was being remodeled and rebuilt. For Herod's many faults, he was a pretty keen businessman and he knew how to make money. And so for him, rebuilding the temple wasn't about religion at all. That part of it, he really didn't even care about. He wasn't really a practicing Jew. He didn't care about keeping people happy. He wasn't really about caring about or didn't care much about keeping the, the, the religious leaders happy. What he saw was here's this temple that's so important to the Jewish faith. And you know what? 
This can be an economic engine force. If you look at Jewish law, you're required once a year to go to Jerusalem and go to that temple uh, to make a sacrifice for all the sins that you had committed the year before. And so um, what people would do is uh, they would leave their homes and, and, and some of them lived around Jerusalem. Some of them lived in the nation of Israel, but a lot were dispersed at one point. So they lived in all these different places and they would converge on Jerusalem on the Passover week. They say like one and a half to maybe two million people would show up for this festival. And Jerusalem was a big city, but it wasn't that big. All right. So people were living all over the place there and, and putting tents up all over the place. But you, would, you were supposed to bring a, a sacrificial animal from home. And so you'd bring a lamb or you'd bring your doves with you to sacrifice and you're traveling a long distance. You'd get there and the priest had to look at your animal. And almost every single time the priest would look at your animal like, yeah, it's almost clean, but not fully clean. Uh, You need to use one of ours. And so people would just say, you know what? We're not even going to bring animals with us anymore. We'll just wait till we get to the temple. When we get to the temple, we'll get one of those sacrificial animals. They've been blessed by the priest. They're good to go. It's just easier to do that. And so people would wait till they would get there to buy these animals. Again, Herod the Great is all about this economic engine. And so what he decides to do is to build these markets on the outskirts of the temple. And, and so you would show up there at the temple for something like Passover week. You would, you would arrive there and you'd have to get your sacrificial animal. And the priest would tell you, hey, you know, here's where you need to go. Well, you've got this marketplace and you basically have these shops set up. Well, to buy these animals, you had to, you had to change your money. And so there were money changers that were set up and you'd go to the money changer. And you're like, hey, I've got, you know, these coins from this place. The money changer were like, well, you got to have temple coins because the temple had its own, uh, own currency. So you got to have temple coins. And so to do that, here's what the exchange rate's going to be. But guess what? They were extorting money from the people. The exchange rates were way higher than they should have been. Because one, some of that money is going back to the religious leaders. But then two, some of that money is actually going to Herod. And so Herod has his, his fingers, his tentacles, and everything that's happening here at the temple. And so you go, you change money, and then you go over to the sacrificial animal store, which I know sounds terrible, but you'd, you'd pick out your lamb, and you'd pick out your turtle doves that you were going to sacrifice. And here's the funny thing. I just found out this recently. They actually had souvenir shops at the temple. And so while you're there exchanging money, getting these sacrificial animals, doing your sacrifices, you can get your temple swag, right? And so people are leaving with t-shirts like, hey, went to the temple and all I got was this lousy t-shirt and my sin's forgiven. That was probably what they had on their t-shirts that they got there for temple swag. Again, the temple had become something it was not intended to be. It was intended to be a place that people would worship God, but what it had become was a place where people uh, were were giving money back, really, to to the kingdom of of Herod. And because of the setup, they were really becoming spiritually lazy. We don't have to really put any effort from home to come back here. And when we get there, we just exchange our money, we get our animal, we do our sacrifices, we get some temple swag, we kind of celebrate Passover, and we go home. So the people are becoming spiritually lazy. Well, Herod the Great actually dies a little bit after Jesus is born. The nation of Israel is split into these kingdoms for his sons. And one of those rulers, one of his sons, is a guy named Herod Antipas. And he becomes ruler over the Galilee Perea area. This is the northern part of the nation of Israel and the eastern side of the Jordan River. 
And there's actually a guy there in the district that he oversees called Galilee uh, who has his headquarters there, right? It's kind of his ministry headquarters, his hometown at the time. This guy named Jesus. And, um, and Herod Antipas, we look at him kind of briefly, was not really like his dad. Um, he was actually pretty sympathetic towards the Jewish faith. He did a few things that the Jewish people would normally do. Um, he, he took images off the coins because, you know, part of the Ten Commandments says don't make any graven images. And so he, he, he saw that. He was like, no, we're not going to do that. You know, I want to kind of take this seriously, this connection we have. Um, he wasn't really big, big like his dad in construction, but he rebuilt the capital of that area called Tiberias on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He, he wasn't trying to build huge homes, build structures. He wasn't really looking for this huge economic engine uh, to, to be built there. But there was one thing that he did have in common with his dad, and he wasn't a fan of Jesus either. Now, Herod the Great, his dad, didn't really know a whole lot about Jesus because he knew that he was sort of this king that was coming into existence. But other than that, he was trying to get rid of him, but wasn't familiar with him, and he died when Jesus was pretty young. Herod Antipas, on the other hand, um, had different experiences with, with Jesus. Uh, you may know him as the individual, the, the ruler who beheaded John the Baptist. Now, Herod Antipas liked John the Baptist. He liked to hear John the Baptist, but he didn't always like what John the Baptist had to tell him. Uh, Herod Antipas had made some decisions in his life maritally that um, John the Baptist fully did not agree with, with, with good merit there. And uh, he would tell Herod this. Well, finally, it comes to the place where, where Herod, he beheads John the Baptist. He thinks John the Baptist is dead. He begins to hear about this guy named Jesus. He begins to hear about these teachings and this following that he has, and he's doing these miracles, and he thinks that John the Baptist has actually come back to life, that he's been resurrected from the dead. And so he starts to worry about who Jesus is. And if we look at Luke 13, we read a little bit about the conflict that's there for Herod. Verse 31 says, At that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. The rulers of the nation of Israel um, didn't really like the religious leaders of Israel. The religious leaders didn't really like the rulers that were in place. But they actually had one enemy that they could agree on, and, and that was Jesus. Again, we talked about this last week with the religious revolution Jesus led, that he really was messing up their system, their power, their control, and, and they were trying to get rid of Jesus. And now you have someone like Herod who sees Jesus as potentially a threat to him. And so he's like, hey, they got to get rid of, of this guy. Look at verse 32. Jesus replied, go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jesus says, here's the deal. You go tell Herod, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep doing what I've been called to do. This is my mission that I've been put on here on this earth from God, and I will do whatever it takes to fulfill that mission. And so he calls Herod a fox now. In our lexicon, we kind of see that person as being sly, as being kind of cunning, right? And back then, it sort of meant that, but it really was a symbol of a worthless, insignificant man. 
This is really one time we see Jesus call another human being out for who they were, right? I'm guessing that news going back to Herod didn't go over very well with Herod. Because, again, Jesus is jumping into his world. But then finally, these two meet. If you go to Luke 23, starting with verse 7, here's what it says. It says, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. What we have here is this is the Passover week, and Jesus has actually been arrested. Now, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, have accused him of blasphemy. Now, within the Roman courts, that really didn't mean a whole lot. They really didn't care a whole lot about that. But when they went to Pilate, they accused him of rebellion, which, of course, the Roman government really cared about. But Pilate meets with Jesus. He asks him some questions. He tries to get the, the details of this. He's listening to what these other people are telling him. He really can't find a whole lot of truth in it. And he's, he's kind of like, I really don't know what's going on here. It's not really a big deal. This guy's not causing any problems. But again, it's Passover week. And Herod Antipas has come from Galilee to be there in Jerusalem. And Pilate hears this. And so Pilate actually sends Jesus to Herod while he's there in Jerusalem and it's like Herod I'm busy man I got a lot going on this guy's small potatoes I think he's innocent but he's from your district I want you to deal with him and so here's what we find happens when Jesus and Herod connect verse 8 when Herod saw Jesus he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Herod is excited because he's heard about Jesus, right? At one point, he wanted to kill Jesus. Now he wants to meet Jesus. But here's the, the great part for Herod. Jesus is in custody. And so there's no fear for Herod, right? Because he's got his bodyguards or soldiers there. Jesus is probably chained up. And so Herod's like, well, now that I've got this captive audience with Jesus, and I know everybody wants to live, nobody wants to die, he'll do exactly what I ask of him. And so he's like, hey, why don't you, why don't you do some magic tricks for us, Jesus? Why don't you do a little dance? Why don't you maybe tell us some jokes? Entertain us. Because again, in Herod's mind, Jesus wants to save his life. Well, Jesus never does what Herod asks. He never does these miracles that he's hoping for, these tricks that he wants to see. And Herod, Herod begins to ask some questions of Jesus and Jesus never speaks. He never says a word back to Herod. Now, why would he do that? Well, he's not trying to impress anybody. He's not trying to entertain anyone. I'll be honest with you. He really doesn't have time for Herod. Because there's more important things for Jesus to be focused on. Well, then everyone piles on Jesus in verses 10 through 11. says, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him then arraying him in splendid clothing he sent him back to Pilate uh, they made fun of Jesus they laughed at Jesus they dressed him up like a king and then Herod finally says send him back to Pilate I, I don't want anything to do with him I I'm done with him and that's the last interaction Herod and Jesus have <laughs> until the time Jesus comes back, right? But as we look at 
Herod's in place and these rulers in Israel and and we look at Jesus there actually is this one similarity between the two because there are actually two kingdoms that are at play here now the first kingdom is the kingdom of Herod really the kingdom of stuff and if you think about the kingdom of Herod it's shiny it's it's pretty stuff it's uh, amazing it's big it's large it's impressive it's eye-catching it's stuff that makes you happy for a little bit it's stuff that makes you feel good for a little while and and the kingdom of Herod it's about titles and careers and about incomes and living as you wish Uh, the kingdom of Herod is about faith in myself that I'm self-made I'm self-built it's all about me but the funny part about the kingdom of Herod is that you and I innately have this love-hate relationship with that kingdom, with the kingdom of Herod, with the kingdom of stuff. Because we, we love this kingdom for what it brings us. We, we love it because it makes us feel good. It, it gives us money, it gives us status, it, it gives us more stuff, right? But we begin to realize over time the kingdom of Herod also brings chaos. It brings pain. It brings trust issues. It brings broken relationships. It may bring us happiness, but we've talked about happiness before. Happiness is an emotion. Happiness is something that comes and goes. And so we really never experience joy, which is really what we want. But here's the deal with the kingdom of Herod. It's never free. The kingdom of Herod, the kingdom of stuff, it will always cost us. It will cost us our souls. It will, it will have, give us these, these burdens that we will continue to carry. It will always be this baggage that we're kind of pulling up behind us. And here's what else the kingdom of Herod does. It makes us spiritually lazy. Uh, we, we get to this place where we think, you know, I just, just kind of show up on a Sunday and then I got the rest of the week to be part of the kingdom of Herod. I, I can be a part of this outreach project and help for a couple hours and I can be a part of the kingdom of Herod the rest of the time. We become spiritually lazy. In the end, the kingdom of Herod is about me. And the kingdom of Herod is also about being a prisoner. We have this other kingdom, though, that exists, and that's the kingdom of Jesus. And the kingdom of Jesus, it's not fancy. It's not necessarily pretty. It's not shiny. It's not large. It's not impressive. It's not eye-catching. There's no titles, no career path. There's no bonus pay in the kingdom of Jesus. There's no cushy job. There's no nice cars, no expense account, no one bowing down to you, no one cowering to you, no one showing you respect here. And and the reality is the kingdom of Jesus, if we are fully into it, it's going to cost you something. It may cost you your job, your career. It may cost you family members, your status in society. It may, in the end, even cost you your life. But here's what's different about the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Herod keeps us prisoner, keeps us slaves to it. The kingdom of Jesus gives us freedom. And in the kingdom of Jesus, that's the only place where we can be fully free. I love the way Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. And chapter 5, here's what it says. Galatians 5, 1, he writes, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Again, the kingdom of Herod makes us slaves, right? It makes us slaves to the world around us. The kingdom of Jesus, it actually sets us free from the world. And then Paul begins to describe... (laughs) This, this tension that's there for us. Look at verse 16. It says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. 
then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Paul's really saying it's hard to break free from the kingdom of Herod. It's hard to, and no matter how we try, we can still get stuck there. There's always sort of this tension that we experience. It feels good, and it seems like everyone else is living that way. And then he describes what the kingdom of Herod looks like. Look at verse 19. It says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. I think that pretty much lists everything, right? I mean, he's like, Here, here's the deal. This is what happens when you're a part of the kingdom of, of, of Herod, that we become prisoners to the sinful nature that we have. We become prisoners to these things that we want because we're so entranced in the kingdom of Herod. We're so entranced in the kingdom of stuff. But Paul's point is, you don't have to stay a prisoner. You can be free. And how do you become free? Well, you become free because you follow Jesus Christ. You, you, you become a part of the kingdom of Jesus, and you can experience that freedom. You can experience that transformation. And when you do, here's what this freedom produces. Look at the next verses there, verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control when we live in the kingdom of jesus and our lives have been changed and transformed by jesus this is the outcome this is who we become this is how we begin to live our lives and i gotta be honest with you that sounds a lot better than living in the kingdom of herod because this is what freedom truly looks like. See, Jesus came to be this political revolutionary. And he led this political revolution because he really is asking the people then. He's even asking Herods, if you think about it. He's asking, he's like, what kingdom will you choose? Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of Herod? And I know that sounds great and it sounds pretty amazing, but you are always a prisoner to that. You will never get out. And you know you have this love-hate relationship. It kind of feels good, but there's all this, this baggage and chaos that you have that comes from that. Do you want that slavery? Do you want to be imprisoned by that kingdom? Or, or do you want to choose my kingdom? Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus? Well, guess what? It's not necessarily pretty and shiny, but you're free. Your soul is free. You are free. You can have this amazing life. You, you can live this life where these, this fruit of the Spirit is a part of, of who you are. Because Jesus came not to tell people to take up arms to fight, uh, or not to begin these rebellions, to, to go against the ruling leaders at that time, or even to this day. What he came to say was, I want to show you what freedom actually looks like. And so you have to make that choice. Which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Do you want to live as a slave? Do you want to live imprisoned to the kingdom of Herod? Or do you want to live freely in the kingdom of Jesus?
One brings us death. One, if you look at the kingdom of Herod, and you think about Herod, he's just kind of a, all the Herods, they're, they're sort of an afterthought, right? They're just kind of a side note in history. But the other brings us life. It brings us transformation. And I'm pretty sure Jesus isn't a side note in history because that kingdom will bring us incredible freedom. But you and I have to choose which kingdom we want to be a part of. Today, as we head into our communion time, I want to look at verse 24 and 25 here. Because Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Paul reminds the readers, the listeners of what he is writing here, that in the end, the kingdom of Jesus is a powerful, powerful place. That Christ, that Jesus put his life on the line and, and our kingdom of Herod, our stuff, our kingdom of stuff, that it actually can be nailed to that tree with Christ. And in that, we can experience the freedom that we need to experience in our lives. And so maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're beginning this path to follow Jesus and this journey. You're trying to figure things out. Listen, we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to make Jesus the leader of your life. And we'd love to talk to you about baptism and what baptism means and how that connects to, to us being all in when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus. And so if you're at home right now on your uh, website there on that page, you can hit the connection card and you can fill that out and, and mark that. We'd love to set up that time to talk to you. If you're here in this place, there's a QR code in the seat in front of you. Take a picture of that and uh, that'll take you to our connection card. We'd love for you to fill that out because we know that living in the kingdom of Jesus is so much more powerful and so much more better than living in the kingdom of Herod. And if you're a follower of Jesus, let the Spirit lead you and continue to feel and experience that freedom that only Jesus can give us. Uh, that's why every week here at The Journey, we take communion together as a reminder that our kingdom, the kingdom of Herod, the kingdom of stuff, can be nailed to that tree. And it was with Jesus. And we can choose to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. And when we do that, we are a part of something incredible and amazing. We are free. And so these emblems are a reminder of that freedom. And so I invite you here in this place, I invite you at home to grab your wafer, your bread, and take that as this time as we are reminded that this was nailed on the tree for our sinful nature. Let's take together. This juice was shed on that tree for our sinful nature too. Let's take that together now. God, we are reminded in times like this that there's so much incredible power in, in who Jesus was, that you sent him to this earth to live this incredible life, to Give us these teachings for us to follow. But the real reason was to die on that cross, to take our sins with him to the grave. 
to be reminded that we can get stuck in the kingdom of Herod and yet we're truly free in the kingdom of Jesus. But God, the beauty of this whole story, of these events uh, that we think about as we take communion is the resurrection. Many people died, but only one came back to life. And in that, you defeated death. You defeated the kingdom of Herod's. You defeated the world. And that gives us hope. A hope for our present, our hope for our future, and best yet, a hope for eternity. God, my prayer is that we choose the kingdom of Jesus every single day. And we experience true freedom through him, with you, and in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.